Well, tell us about today's... Or I'll tell you. I forgot which one we were doing. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined today, as always, I need to think of a new way of saying that, but as always, by oh. my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing? Hey, Robert, I'm doing really well. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. good. Yeah. 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 What has happened with you in the last week? You had, you did, you did a fancy symposium. I know. I love that you think that that word is so fancy. That makes me so happy. Um, I did. And I know I was just, it, it feels like so much has happened in a week that I'm like, wait a minute. What, what, what's going on? What's happened? Um, but yeah, I did. I had a um, I had attended this symposium with the Pastoral Counseling Center up in Dallas, and they brought together mental health care providers and religious leaders, and we talked about the research on integrating faith into mental health treatment and how to work um, and partner with religious leaders to be able to best serve our individuals and families and communities and. It was a lot of fun. It just was so energizing and encouraging. Yeah. yeah. And is that, I can't remember, I think you just posted a picture, but that's not, like it wasn't recorded anywhere that people can go check out, right? Oh, I think they did record it, but I don't think that they have shared that. I don't I don't know what they're going to do with it. But at some point, I would love to connect you with Dr. Brad Schwal, who had helped to organize this. At some point, I think you would... You, you two would probably get along pretty well. So well, I'm always yeah. I'm always looking to connect with people and make new friends, and you know. Yeah. What about you? What have you been up to this week? Oh man, we went, and I think I don't remember if we mentioned it last week or not that we were both kind of traveling. I don't think we did. That's but right. We no, you went, posted about it, but right, yeah, yeah in the uh, the CXMH community group on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, if yep. you want to join that, go to cxmhpodcast.com/support. Yep. <laughs> Shameless plug. If, yeah. No, uh, that's good. Oh, so we went, we traveled to Maryland to visit uh, my grandparents up there and see some family and whatnot. And, uh, it was a, a really good time. It was really special. Uh, they got to meet Gray, which was awesome. He, we have some pictures of him with what are his great grandparents, which is really cool. Aww. Um, and, you know, my, my parents went up separately, but also at the, you know, kind of the, for the same time period. And then my brother and his wife went up at the same time and oh, um, and awesome. so we kind of all got to be there which was really a really good fun special time to yeah. you know, be with some family especially because they're so far away that we typically only get to see them once a year and obviously that gets a little a little more challenging when you know we have gray and then my brother and his wife are expecting their first child in december so that gets yeah. a little more complicated as it goes so yeah a really good time there uh, yeah, a little, a little more difficult time getting home. Which, yeah, I was gonna say, if, what, uh, what happened? If there are any uh, very, uh, very excited, keen listeners, which I don't know if those exist, but they uh, will have noticed that our episode last week didn't come out until Tuesday instead mm-hmm. of the usual Monday. So, man, it was something else. So we flew. Uh, Brooke, myself, and Gray flew standby. Right, uh, we get buddy passes based on some relatives, uh, oh, that's and if. Nice. 
if you don't know what standby is, right, it's essentially you pay, like, it's a way cheaper ticket, but then it's, like, the leftover seats on whatever flight. So you mm-hmm. kind of show up and hope that that flight isn't full or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so going out there, totally fine, got on the first flight that we had bought the tickets for, and they roll from flight to flight. So if you don't get on one, they just roll to the next one. So going out there, totally fine, super easy, graded great on the plane, which we were oh, worried about. Gosh. yeah. He, is this he, the first time that he's traveled? Like he's been on no, a plane? No, so he flew back in July. We went to Indianapolis oh, to do, oh, I was doing right. some suicide prevention stuff for some campus yeah. ministers out there. Uh-huh. But he was a lot younger, obviously. So he like just slept the whole time. And we were a little worried because now he's more active mm-hmm. and he's exponentially louder, even if he's having yeah. fun. Uh-huh. So, but he did great on the way out there. And then on the way coming back on Sunday night, we had bought the the tickets for I think like a two no like a I guess a four o'clock flight and there was two after that so we figured if we don't get on that one it rolls over it rolls over right mm-hmm. and so we get to the airport around two something and you can check online and there was like 30 something seats on that flight and so we thought we'll, we'll be fine we were yeah in the list of standby people I think we were you know 11 and 12 or whatever it was uh-huh. And so we get to the airport, check in, go through all that, and then get to kind of the gate area. And all of a sudden, there's like 13 seats instead of, what, a 30. And so we oh thought, well, gosh. that really sucks. And so we thought, we're probably not getting on this one. So we're trying to look at the next couple and see how many there are there. Mm-hmm. And there's not that many. And people can kind of show up at any point in time. And it's based on – there's there's ways that they, like, rank – you know, standby seats. So there's people that could buy a standby ticket that would get go ahead of us based on how long uh, they've worked there. Or, you uh-huh. know, if somebody gets rolled over from another flight that got canceled or something, they automatically get on. Mm. And so we thought, well, there's only, you know, an hour or two until the next, until we would know if we were on the next one. And then between that and the last one, there's, you know, an hour or something. So. Oh my gosh. I just can't imagine having a five month old while you're like just juggling that though. Right. Yeah. So we've done it before with just us, which is kind of fine. I mean, you can, you can entertain yourself for a couple hours, but it's much harder as you would imagine (laughs) with a small child. Um, because the worst case scenario was that we didn't get on any of them. And then, uh, my parents who would come, who had dropped us off would have to come back and get us. And we would have to go back to my grandparents, stay the night again, and then try again in the morning. Mm. which aside from being really inconvenient, leaving, kind of saying goodbye and all that is you know, yeah. hard since we only see them every once in a while. And so to kind of go back Dude, and do it all again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we end up, we didn't get on the second one either. And so then it looked really mm. bad for all of them. And we thought about just leaving, but we decided we're just going to stick it out. We would rather stay and not get on than leave. And we could have gotten on. Oh my gosh. So we end up, we're standing there and they start boarding for the last flight, which is like a eight, nine o'clock flight. And we got uh-huh. to report it too. So we've been there for quite some time. Oh my gosh. And so we're standing around, they board, they board, they board, and, and we're looking at it and we are like, I want to say 13 and 14 for like 13 seats, which means mm. that one of us could go. Oh my uh, gosh. So we were kind of evaluating, okay, do, do Brooke and Gray go? But then mm-hmm. I stay, which would be kind of fine, but her having yeah. to be alone on a plane is really hard. So, and then we, we like keep getting bumped down and back up or whatever. And then they get to calling the standby people and they just call out your name and then you go up and they say, go on. Mm-hmm. And it literally happened so that two of the other standby people that were ahead of us 
didn't show up when they called their name. They just, I mean, cause you can just, it, it just keeps yeah. rolling. So it doesn't matter. So two of them didn't show up and we got the last two seats on the last flight back. Oh my gosh. And Robert. they were next to each other, which is oh, obviously not guaranteed. That's, oh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Man. So it was, I don't think I've ever felt so relieved about something mm. that was not like, you know, kind of life or death or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but like, man, so that, no, all that being said, stressful day i mean yeah. being at the airport period is and traveling is already stressful as is and then add on top of it having you know a, an infant and then add on top of that being there all day and then yeah. you know waiting for the last flight and being the last people to get on to the last flight that is it was yeah that's a else. day that yeah is a so day right i had there. i had planned on you know, we would get home around six or so, and then I could kind of edit the episode. Mm-hmm. I took I took everything to do it while we were there, but just spent no, time with people instead. I'm glad that you. Yeah. But then, I mean, we literally yeah. didn't. By the time the flight went, and then we got back from the airport and all that. I mean, it was probably ten or eleven by the time we actually got home, back to mm-hmm. our house. And so mm-hmm. uh, I had already told you, hey, this there's a good chance this doesn't happen. Um, yeah. So just do it no, the next day. So that's okay. I I mean, and I love the you know it was such a good episode. It's okay. I think it's totally fine. It just got bumped a day. That's not that big of a deal. But but man, it's been so fun seeing the um the feedback that we've gotten from that episode last week and yeah. just how much folks have been just loving that episode. It was a really good one with Felina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, it's awesome. So well, aside from traveling, has everything else been going okay? Yeah, yeah, it has. It's been going pretty well. Um, you know, everything's kind of going along and, yeah. um, you know, kind of the, the same things that we, we've talked about a couple of times with some of the side things and all. So I'm not, we won't, uh-huh. you know, everything's going along, I'll say. That's S- good. Slowly no, but that's surely. Great. Yes. No, 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 no. But I know exactly what you're talking about. Everything is going along. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, same with me. This is the middle of the semester for us. And man, we are, I know my students are feeling it. I'm feeling it. We've got, you know, I've got a conference coming up and a couple of conferences coming up soon. But I will say that I've had a couple of things move off my plate that were on mm. it for a long time. And man, it feels so good to get those check marks in and just not have a couple of those things. Yeah. You know, just having to revisit them each week. It's such a good feeling. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. But anyways. So you have but, some conferences coming up. Any more symposiums? No, no more what's symposium. The, what's, yeah, what's the plural of symposium? Um, I don't symposia? know. Symposia? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Symposia. Maybe one of our listeners can can school us on that. I'm not sure. I think it yeah. I think it'd be end with an A. I don't know. But I've got one coming up that's an ethics workshop and then I've got another our um co- our council on social work education meeting is the next one which is actually where I had connected with Jonathan Singer um last hey, year. Hey. Yeah, hey, shout hey. out to Dr. Singer. Hi. So yeah, so that's where we had connected last year and and we've got that conference coming up soon too. Nice. So, yeah. Wow. So Robert, why don't you tell us a little bit about this week's episode? Yeah, so our episode this week our interview is with Dr. Meredith Gould, who some people may be familiar with, maybe not, but uh, is a big online advocate for a lot of things, but does a lot with online advocacy. And then kind of the flip side of that is spend some time writing and talking about the importance of self-care and disengaging from that. And so, you know, I think mm-hmm. every every weekend she 
takes a whole day off social media and things like that just for her own health and, and things like that. So, you know, she's a sociologist, a, a longtime spiritual seeker. We talk some about that because she has books about, you know, acts of kindness and Judaism and Christianity and all sorts of different things. And so mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, a really interesting guest in that sometimes we have guests that are experts in like one very specific thing, which is fantastic. But she is an expert in a lot of different things, which is definitely fun. You know, if you look at her books, there's... I think for however many books there are, there's that many different topics that yeah. she's decided to research. And I think we talk a little bit about how she decides that, mm-hmm. you know, just whatever is whatever she's feeling passionate about at that time. That's what she researches and writes a whole book on. And mm-hmm. so it's a really good episode. We hit a whole bunch of things. Uh, I'm actually really interested to see we're recording this before I do some of the editing. And so I'm really interested to see what we end up naming this. Because it's not, you know, one specific topic necessarily, but it's a, I think it's a really fascinating conversation with Meredith just because she can talk about things from so many different angles. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And she gave us some great ideas and tips and things that we can be considering, but I really do appreciate how she talked so much and so well about that balance between advocacy and self-care, which especially, you know, in this time right now, mm. we really we've really got to be paying attention to both. And and I think she does a great job with that in this episode. Hey, can that reminds me really quick just piggybacking on last week's episode, we had mentioned at one point that, you know, while we were talking with Felina, we were like, hey, maybe we should create a group um, in Insight Timer, right? Which is an app on your mobile device that it's just Insight Timer app. And we went ahead and created a group for that. So maybe that could be something that you do to engage in self-care is practicing this meditation. But um, but I just wanted to put that plug out there and let folks know that you could find us on Insight Timer within one of the groups. So go ahead and search for CXMH yeah. and, and you'll find us in there. Awesome. Well, hey, that's probably yeah. enough for us. I think my story took the longest <laughs> time, but we can go ahead and get into the episode here. Definitely check out that group in Insight Timer. I joined it, but then haven't done anything with it. So you can beat me in meditation <laughs> oh, minutes no. for sure. No, don't make it a competition, Robert. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, yes, no, it's just for you. Don't don't be like me. Oh, that's all right. awesome. Here is our episode with Dr. Meredith. Enjoy. Hey friends. If you are in the Atlanta area or somewhere close by, I want to invite you to a suicide prevention training that I'm hosting and putting on on November 14th. It comes with training and a certification that comes through the QPR Institute, and we'll be focusing on young adults, kind of college age, upper high school, things like that. So it's going to be a really informative time, and you will walk away with not only that knowledge, but also some certification which is helpful for you. If you're interested, you can find information at robert-vore.com slash events. All the details are there as well as the option to buy tickets. So feel free, go on, check that out, and maybe even pass that information along to anyone you know who might be interested, someone who is in college or has college-age children or works with college students or is just interested in the basic principles of suicide prevention that will definitely be in there. The information specific to kind of college-age students is kind of towards the beginning, but the the basics of suicide prevention and the certification for suicide prevention will all be there. Again, that's robert-vore.com slash events. 
We are joined today by Dr. Meredith Gould. She is a sociologist, a longtime spiritual seeker, a mixed media mosaic artist, an award-winning author of at least 11 published books, with one always in the works. I don't know if you've published any more since I got this bio, but her books cover a huge variety of topics, including things like collaboration in the church, communicating using social media technology, deliberate acts of kindness, and a bunch, a bunch of things. Uh, Also very involved in online advocacy and uh, writes pretty often on Twitter and things like that about the balance of online advocacy and self-care. Dr. Gould, how are you doing today? Um, well, I'm doing great because I'm talking to you two. Um, that means I'm, Twitter for tw- <laughs> I'm not on Twitter for 45 minutes, so it's <laughs> so good. I mean, yeah. honestly, I get on there and my I could feel my blood pressure, you know, rising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's definitely part of, you know, what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, I did want to ask, you have written about such a variety of topics that, and Holly Holly can back me up on this, I was trying to get questions based on your writing and things, and <laughs> I was, they were kind of everywhere because you've written about a huge variety of things. I mean, how do you choose what thing you're looking into or, or studying at any point in time? Oh, that's a great question. It's an easy, it's easy question to answer. You know, the uh, the adage, I teach what I need to learn, I write what I need to explore. So a, mm. most of my books are based on something I've either been doing, wanting to do, wanting to do better, wanting to know more about. So some people just go to Google or a library, I write a book. The other thing is I have my personal motto is don't get mad, get published. So whenever I... <laughs> kind of get a bug up my butt about something. I'm like, well, that does it. I'm writing a whole book. So <laughs> I, That's I, amazing. I it. mm-hmm. it's thank you for using the word amazing and not nuts. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I've written about recovery actually. And, um, my Hazelden book, which is one of the books that does earn royalties, I must say it's been out for pretty um, almost 20 years, maybe longer. That book I wrote because when I first went into 12-step recovery, I looked at the book Living Sober and thought, oh, God, this isn't, this isn't even good advice, and it's boring. <laughs> I know. I'll write a book that's great advice and hilarious. I mean, my arrogance knows no limits, you know? So it's the same thing with, like, why is there a menorah on the altar? Okay, so I'm raised Jewish. I'm a Jew. I have what I lately... Those are people who follow me on Twitter. Some people are scratching their heads. Others are sending me direct messages saying, what is going on with you? And other people were saying, yeah, I saw this kind of happening. So I had um, what I call my Christian era, which uh, involved Catholicism and, and some other stuff. So I wrote a book called The Catholic Home because... Uh, being raised Jewish, I was just shocked at how Catholics seem to have absolutely no awareness of the mm-hmm. ethnic heritage and customs that came with a lot of the immigrants to the United States mm. and, you know, and that show up and that it's very, you know, having a home-based, home-based observance is very common, is at the core of Judaism, actually. Mm-hmm. So I wrote yeah. that for that and then I wrote why is there a menorah on the altar the Jewish roots of Christian worship because midway through my Christian era when I was working with a a lot of Protestants as well uh, doing digital strategy I was just getting just over the top annoyed that they weren't didn't seem to understand that 
Jesus of Nazareth was a Jew and just about all ritual, all liturgy, a lot of the sacraments absolutely have Jewish roots. So mm-hmm. I, I know I'll school them. I'll write a book. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of, you know, that's how you end up with 11 books. What can I say? <laughs> that's awesome. No, I think that's such a good point because I think one of the, the really interesting things to me, the more that I get into, uh, you know, kind of the Christian world, especially kind of the academic world or anything like that, it does seem like we've kind of swung away from tradition for a variety of reasons. You know, we have churches that are, you know, don't use any liturgy, but that that right. makes it really hard to understand a lot of what Jesus is doing, things like that. You know, mm-hmm. you look at the Old Testament and you go, what is happening here? What are these references Jesus is making? Because yeah. by and large, we've kind of ignored any of the the Jewish heritage, which, I mean, myself included, you know, I, I don't know anything about any of that. So it makes it really hard sometimes to understand what, what the context is for the things that we're saying we believe. Oh, right. And so one of my standard tweets, you know, for you follow me on Twitter and I know you spend your entire day and night looking at what I'm tweeting, but my standard tweets are things like, people, people, please read Leviticus. People, people, Jesus was a Pharisee. Learn your Jewish sex. That's S-E-C-T-S, sex. Right. Uh, you know. um, so I'm always on there. I just had an exchange with someone right before I got onto Skype with you. With a, I have a lot of fun with Jason Chestnut, who's one of my favorite, favorite colleagues and co-conspirators. We work together. We work on, we've been working on some wonderful video projects together. Yeah. Uh, He's also an ELCA pastor. He's not pulpit based. He does Mm. actually, he does digital ministry. Yeah. uh, Yeah. But he, he was on Twitter complaining about or noticing how people were just so impatient about uh, him getting back to them when they phoned him. And he said, People, it's the year of our Lord, 2018, blah, 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 blah. And I replied with, well, maybe things will go better for you in 5779, which is the upcoming (laughs) Jewish year. So I like to have fun with that. I consider that part of just my own self-entertainment and also part of my never-ending mission to educate Christians more about their Jewish roots. I mean, uh, yeah. by Rabbi Ruth Adar, I don't know how to pronounce her name. I think it's either Adar or Adar. She's up as coffee shop rabbi. She does the best of the basic Judaism posts on her blog. I, mm. I retweet her a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. And she had a post up today about Shalom, and I, I re, uh, retweeted it with a comment saying, all ye who think shalom, use shalom as an adverb, adjective, verb, please read this. Because there's a trend among Christians to talk about a life of shalom, you know. And and actually, that's not what it means. To, the word does not mean what you think it means to do. So it's, mm. it gets into the whole expropriation of religious culture and faith culture and spiritual culture, which I bumped up against when I started and then ran um, interfaith chat for four months. So that's, that's a whole other conversation, but it was fast. That was fast. And I need to write about that at some point. (laughs) 
So it's interesting uh, you bring up Jason. He's actually been on the show. I don't know if you know okay. that. He's been on the show um, a while back, and we talked about Slate Speak and uh, yeah. his experiences with depression and things like that, which I think actually is how you and I encountered each other was uh-huh. I think you guest hosted Slate Speak at one point. Yes, I did. Yeah, so then I think that's how I saw you, and then we interacted some. So I love it when kind of worlds colliding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's he's one of my dear dear friends. I'm in. I'm putting in a heavy heavy push to get him to move to Albuquerque. I want him to live here. (laughs) Oh, that's so awesome. Well, I love that you you mentioned that that post about Shalom. I actually pulled it up as you were mentioning it and just skinning through it. And I I want to echo and um, hope that others. Um, when they listen to this, we'll go go back to find that. The the site, if you don't mind, I'm going to just mention that the site is at coffeeshoprabbi.com. And the post was on May 23rd of this year. Yeah, please do. Yeah, it's really good. So I, I wanted to ask, well, one, so I want to circle back. You mentioned a comment where you said you write what uh, like you said, I, I write what I need to explore. And right. as a fellow, you know, writer and academic, and I I wrote that down because I love just how you're articulating that, that yeah. the writing process, it is this like creative, like you have to go in and, and use this space to explore um, by writing. And I just love that, how you articulated that so well. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah don't call me an academic. I was an academic for a big chunk of time. I'm actually, I claim bragging rights to what's called the lost cohort of women sociologists. There was a whole group of us who did a lot of feminist theory and, and basically created gender studies in the 1970s and the beginning of the 80s. And we all went up for, a lot of us went up for tenure uh, in the mid-1980s and did not get it. And some of oh, us gosh. decided to stay in academia. And oh, there were man. others who went into the public sector and private sector. And I was one of those people who said, okay, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me do my work elsewhere. And, and that's fine. I actually have never regretted it because what I learned after leaving academia was that, and I loved it. I mean, I love teaching. I love teaching undergraduates, graduate students, not as much, but <laughs> undergraduates. I love teaching sociology. I'm, I'm just eternally grateful that that ended up being my academic discipline. And it, and it just, it, me- it meshes very nicely with being a, a visual artist. But I, what I learned after leaving academia was that teaching happens everywhere and learning happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and that was years before the internet was even invented, hashtag I'm old. So wow. <laughs> you know, these days I'm really even more so, I, I, and I look at changes to the extent I pay attention anymore, the changes in the way teaching happens, you know, didactic methodology and pedagogy. And mm-hmm. I think, you know what, the, the world, it, as long as I have Wi-Fi, as long as I have connectivity, as long as I use social media wisely and well, then I have a classroom. And yeah. so I, I didn't lose anything by leaving academia, except possibly access to funding to do research. But even that, what I've done by working, and I worked in the healthcare, in and around the healthcare industry for decades, I've always used that to the whatever I, whenever I'm able to earn consulting there, I use it to underwrite my other work. So, 
you know, it's it's worked out well. But no, I'm not yeah. an academician anymore. But I'll tell you that skill set is invaluable. Just the ability to theorize and understand. Hey, kids, what's an intervening variable? You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Has yeah, being valuable. That's awesome. Well, and I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I mean, the fact that there are these um, opportunities to be learning everywhere, no matter what, is beautiful. And it's true. And it's not just teaching, but it's the advocacy work that we do, too, as thought leaders, as thinkers, as creatives, mm-hmm. as writers, etc. And so one of the things that we were, you know, that I was curious about, too, is Thinking about not just online teaching, but online advocacy, I wonder a little bit too about what you see as perhaps being some difference between like online advocacy or just advocacy work in general. Or you could talk a little bit about, you know, what the difference is between online advocacy and maybe other types extending, you know, beyond the type of work that you're doing, I guess. Right. Okay. Uh, I'd love to talk about that. The just a little bit of background and if I'm getting too deep in the weeds or talking too much just say enough move on Meredith I I won't be offended I come out of a tradition not just Judaism but my family has a a long history of being so uh, being involved with social activism and political activism so I grew up with that I grew up in a home where I was taught you never, never cross a picket line. My great grandfather was one of the, was very active in the workmen's circle at the turn of the century in New York. And uh, my father, for example, broke the color bar when he was in in the army by um, bringing, uh, you know, black troops into, you know, luncheonettes in the fort. I mean, this is just going to go forever. My parents were very active against redlining in New Jersey, Mm. Serbia. Mm -hmm. My grandparents very active in Jewish philanthropy and activism and all that. So I grew up with this and it's just rampant through my entire family, actually. Mm. My brother, big environmentalist um, activist type of thing. So this is not news. What happened for me, though, is... I kind of set that aside. It went, I would say, looking back, talking about it now, I'd say it went dormant for a while, in part because I was wrestling with things that I've written about, you know, spiritual life. What does it mean to have a spiritual life? What does it mean to be a spiritual person? What's the difference mm-hmm. between religion and spirituality? You know, who am I? What am I? What What do I believe? What am I called to do? So I spent a lot of time doing that and returning to artwork as part of that. You know, it's just of mm-hmm. a piece. Well, a cold, talk about the ice bucket challenge, which threw a bucket of ice water in my face was the election. And after mm-hmm. the inauguration, I literally sat there and sobbed. And in between sobs said, oh, my God. I was raised to believe that times like these, there will be times like these again, especially for Jews and people who are at risk mm-hmm. or at risk majorities, like women. Um, but mm-hmm. what am I doing? What am I doing? Yeah. And so that was the question I had to shift everything to look at that question after the inauguration. And during that inquiry, it became, it was a, 
I had to do it very quickly. I felt time was of the essence. And it was swift, but it was also complex. Again, thank God for the training in sociology to be able to sort through all the stuff really quickly. And mm-hmm. I now I'm at this point in time and, and point in history, both personal history and history in this country, where I have a very particular set of skills in digital and I have a set of skills in terms of sociological perspective and I have a deep call through Judaism to repair the world, to make the world a better place because I've been in it. Core value of Judaism is, yeah. colloquial terms, don't be a jerk. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you say don't be a jerk in Hebrew because I didn't go to Hebrew school, but I'm sure there's mm-hmm. some equivalent to it. And so all that came together for me after the inauguration. And I thought, what can I do? So what I ended up doing is what I've always done, I think, immodestly, I will say, what I've always done well on Twitter and on Facebook is that I am a good curator because I'm so well-trained in research and analysis and because I enjoy it. It's very easy and it gives me great joy to find resources for people. I probably should have been a librarian, actually. So... (laughs) I, even though I'm a writer and even though I create content, I think one of my best skill sets is involved with curating content. So I Mm. saw, okay, what I can do at this point in time is curate content, vetting it to make sure it is accurate. And by that, I don't mean partisan necessarily, but accurate in terms of the data, in terms of the reportage. And then also I watched the whole culture of Twitter change. I mean, there's this ongoing conversation that those of us, I mean, I got on Twitter, I guess, in 2008. um, Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, you'll see people who've been on since 2007, 2008, going, I miss the old Twitter. Um, (laughs) And that's that's true. It really was like a lovely dinner party back then. What I noticed uh, starting in 2016 is that there was a whole new population coming onto Twitter that had never been on Twitter before. Generationally speaking, mm. I saw a lot more Gen Xers come on and have a public presence and a lot more millennials and then mm. a, certainly a lot more Gen Zs, which is you know, these wonderful, wonderful uh, young people, you know, teens and tweens who I, be- I believe, I hope are going to save our, our mm. world yeah. from us. Yeah. But um, I saw that and I, and I noticed that they really didn't know how to use the medium or, in, you know, in my never humble opinion, I thought they could use the medium better. So one of the first things I did was create that guide called Social Activism 101, Digital Activism 101. And that, I put that together um, early on, uh, posted it publicly on SlideShare so anybody can get it, got a bit of traction, got actually a lot of traction. And that was basically a self-assessment guide where I explained what are the options for activism in a digital on a digital platform Mm -hmm. and then how do you choose which one to use and then self-assessment in terms of self-care so i realized early on that the potential for burnout yeah and 
burnout and also compassion fatigue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Massive, massive. So I wanted to offer that as a resource. And, and so I basically flogged that for a while in 2016. Yeah. Then I reissued Deliberate Acts of Kindness because that never quite found its audience when it first came out. It was first published by Doubleday. Um, and it, now it's republished by Clear Faith Publishing. I, I added some stuff. I took out some stuff, redesigned the cover, and then reissued it. And I figured, okay, this is a time to reissue it because people are really asking, what am I supposed to do? You know, yeah. both mm. in the world of politics but beyond politics. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, not everybody's going to want to get involved with politics. And quite frankly, I don't blame them. So at, at the level of social interaction and community, you know, live face-to-face -face, as well as digital, Mm -hmm. um, what are the tips? So that goes to your question, okay, how is it different? So what I've tried yeah. to do is is not, I guess, integrate the two, but also um, uh, cross-reference them to say, okay, you can do this on digital. Digital allows you to do uh, a number of things that you can't do face-to-face, -face, but face-to-face -face allows you to do things you cannot do on digital. So for example, Again, right before I jumped onto Skype, I just had to do that one more thing thing. And the one more thing thing was retweeting with a comment. I believe it was a tweet from Anne Lamott where she said, you know, make phone calls. And I retweeted that with a comment saying, this is a true fact. Legislative people, the aides in congressional offices and Senate offices, what they do is they tally phone calls. They just mm. there tally the phone calls. So you can sign all the petitions you want and, you know, good for you. But really, the thing that has impact is mm -hmm. calling. Mm. And, and a lot of people do not know that. Countable has been really good at educating people about that. So that's the other thing I did. I started curating what are the online accounts that are educating people about uh, the democratic processes that we, for now, still have, um, mm -hmm. and how to become a politically and socially active using digital. What happened then is I would say about six or eight months into this, I saw a lot of the thought leaders emerging who are extraordinary. Uh, coming out of academia, for example, I would say, among historians, Kevin Cruz is a must-follow person. Mm. Sarah Zador is a must-follow person. She's an anthropologist and a, I believe she's also a political scientist who does remarkable work about totalitarian regimes. So I started to watch um, people like that, and certainly I have, and I think it's still public. I put together a list called Legal Eagles, um, which is my vetted list of the top uh, legal analysts and constitutional experts that I recommend people follow. I also have a little bit of law school in my background. So I saw those accounts emerging and thought, okay, I no longer have to do this. All I have to do mm. is I directed people to these accounts and now they have their own momentum. Nobody needs me promoting them anymore. Mm. Um, so that's what I did on Twitter. On Facebook, what I committed to doing for the first, I guess, six or eight months of this thing um, 
it was to absolutely provide resources. And I'm talking crazy stuff like here's how, here's where you find and can download a copy of the U.S. Constitution. So very focused on that initially going to, you know, ever the educator, going to our conversation at the beginning, you can teach mm -hmm. anywhere that, I mean, I would teach when I taught sociology, you know, introductory, just introduction to sociology. I once discovered that I had to teach my undergraduate students the structure of U.S. government the three-branch mm. system before I could even talk about a sociological definition of community because even back then they weren't learning civics or U.S. government in high school. So we have at least two generations who really have no idea of the about the legislative process, have no idea how U.S. government is structured. So that's, what I, that's what I'm doing now just to move on and then I'll shut up and ask you respond or ask me another question <laughs> is a year and a half into that. Okay. So we're talking 2016. We're now at 2018, a year and a half into that. I started to look at the impact of all this was having on me and it was making me literally sick. I mean, just, mm. just sickening. And I already have an autoimmune disorder. I don't need any more stress. So, um, that kind of forced me to say, okay, what else is important to me? What does self-care look like for me? And what, how might this be useful for anyone else? And coincidentally, and I absolutely do not believe in coincidence. So by, I would say by mm. the grace of, by the grace of God, um, mm -hmm. I had taken a mosaic art course and just for fun and <laughs> fell in love, fell in love with that medium. I had been a working artist in my early 20s. I realized that my last paid position as a working artist, I was 23. Wow. And it took me, you know, 40 years to get back to that core, that core identity because I was yeah. raised, actually, my first art lessons, I was seven years old. So I was kind of raised to be an artist as, as well as a troublemaker, you know? Um, <laughs> so I found myself falling in love with mosaics and mixed media mosaics as a medium and, and just feeling my whole body unwind and feeling delight, which I talk about as a spiritual practice in desperately seeking spirituality, identify, delight as a spiritual practice. And I mm. discovered that for myself. And then relative to politics and social activism, I thought, you know what, I don't even want to write anymore. I mean, I will, but made a big, you know, hashtag drama announcement. I'm never writing another book that may have been. <laughs> but for me, I realized words were insufficient. And basically what I believe we need what I think and feel we all need more of is beauty. Mm. Um, mm. Because is agnostic. I mean, art is agnostic. That that old saw, you know, I don't know art, but I know what I like. I don't have a problem with that. You know, some people like some stuff, some people like other stuff. But I, I thought, okay, my best contribution at this point 
is to create art, make art and mm. retweet and post art and, and Instagram and to reintroduce people to the visual beauty around us because in the, in the presence of so much duplicity and lying and lack of integrity and and just horrible you know putting children in cages just the horror that we live yeah. with every day now that we never thought would happen in this country yeah to say to someone here here are the mountains I get to look at every day. Yeah. Yeah. That's right for right here and now, digitally and face to face. I feel like that's the best art contribution I can make. Yeah. Mm. So you're you're kind of touching on one of these questions that we have, and that's you know in, you know we live in kind of times, and I don't know if they're particularly unique or not, but we definitely live in times where a lot of people feel like, hey, I need to be advocating for what I believe in, you know, my, my faith compels me or my belief in humanity compels me or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But there's just this flow of constant news that, you know, is more accessible than ever, obviously. And it does seem like, you know, kind of every day there's some kind of uh, bonkers news story coming out. But how do we balance that with taking care of ourselves, right? So you said you found artwork as part of it. But, you know, some of us feel like, well, I need to be speaking i need to be doing something that matters and, yeah. and yeah. so there's this tension of well if i go do artwork it feels frivolous because people are hurting somewhere in the, you know but right. that's you know not necessarily the case so how do, how do we balance that how do we navigate that well you know I, I love that you use the word frivolous because now you give me an opportunity to tell one of the stories that if i ever write again i will tell in writing or retell in writing i dropped out of art school um, I was in college. I went to Rochester Institute of Technology. I dropped out in my junior year. And the reason I dropped out of art school is because I thought it was frivolous and irresponsible for me to be an art student when we had just bombed Cambodia. Mm. That was my reason. And, you know, later, you know, kind of like joke about this was apparently nobody had shown me Guernica or explained to me the possible power of art you know um but you know as a as a 19 year old or a 20 year old or 20 however old i was at that time um i just thought this is totally frivolous i can't be an artist so mm. the first thing i would say is that as a culture we have a bad habit of not honoring uh artists in the visual and, and performing and creative arts uh, for the contribution artists do make in the way we see and hear and express. So I, I think that's, I believe that's changing. I, I actually think uh, it, I, the biggest change I saw was when Hamilton came out as a musical. I think mm. that's one of the first instances where younger people, a younger generation of people were able to see the political value of art. Mm. And that's what mm -hmm. that is. Yeah. Um, when Obama, the kind of, you know, iconographic image of Obama in the polarized color poster, yeah. which has become iconic for a lot of images, political images, um, I think that also moved people into understanding that 
there's a whole domain of political art and artists and, mm-hmm. and, and all that and wall murals and all that. So first, I think we need to understand and maybe even start teaching people, you know, early on that artists, musicians and writers and visual artists and dancers have always challenge the status quo and challenge a political reality. It's dated now, but if you go uh, watch a, a cabaret, I mean, that is a musical about the Weimar Republic, you know, right before the rise of the Nazis. I mean, that's what that's about. So mm. we do not actively teach people unless they're in an art class. We don't, as when we teach sociology and we teach anthropology and we teach history, we don't weave in the arts as part of the way resistance can emerge and can show. So that's one thing. So, uh, sorry, there's also, I think this is also super relevant to like faith communities as we think about them. So there's a, there's a Brian Zond book called Beauty Will Save the World that came out a while back where he kind of traces this, you know, our habit of, you know, at one point we had big cathedrals with artwork and stuff. And then at some point we said, hey, you don't need to pay for artwork that could go to something else. And so now we have churches that are in storefronts or, and not that those are terrible, but we've, we've trended towards the very practical and that we've kind of lost something in, in yeah. faith spaces of saying, hey, I'm, I'm astounded by this beauty of this artwork of this, exactly. you know, things like that. So I think that's, that's relevant in faith, faith spaces as well. Yes, and actually one of my favorite books about this is an old book by Andrew uh, Andrew Greeley called The Catholic Imagination, and he opens, and opens it up talking about cathedrals. Now, he was also, you know, Andrew Greeley of blessed memory, he was also a sociologist. So in The Catholic Imagination, he really does present for you know, the sociological value of art and architecture and beauty for faith communities and community development. It's a very interesting book. So of all the books I've recycled over the years, that's one I've kept. So the first point would be, you know, we can need to recognize the value of arts. The other thing is, I think we need to to help people just like stop with this exceptionalism around art in the sense that it, mm. it breaks my, I mean, again, hashtag hyperbole, but it breaks my heart <laughs> when I hear people say, well, I can't, I can't, I can't even draw a st- straight line. Oh, yeah. And I want to yeah. say nuts, neither can artists. We use rulers. <laughs> you know, it's just like, and by the way, now there's digital. Why would you even have it? <laughs> yeah. So no, I love that. This notion that I haven't been trained in music, so I can't make music. I can't make sound. I can't, I can't make art because I have no art training or I'm colorblind. So how am I going to, it's like, I just like want to jump up and say, stop it. Yeah. The arts and artistic expression are available to anyone and everyone. And what you have to do as an artist which is what I also encourage writers to do. And I write nonfiction. I don't even write fiction, but I've always said this to other nonfiction writers. The hardest thing you will ever have to do as a writer is unhook yourself from the necessity of getting approval from readers. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That is so good. You know, and as long as you want 
you know, that approval, you're going to, that's not, self-care is deciding, you, don't even look at reviews. If it's not, if it's not for you, if it's not helping you express what you need to express, then either don't do it or don't try and publish it. Don't try and show it. I mean, yeah. that's the other thing. People who like, yeah. well, I'm expressing myself and my, and, and I'm going to post it. And I spent a fair percentage of time in the back channel, which would be email, phone, text, and messaging, uh, you know, apps saying to people, just because you feel it and expressed it doesn't mean you share it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, There's, yeah. 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 So there's some self-care. There's a self-care technique there, too, which is to develop the discernment to say, why am I expressing this? Who am I expressing this for? And what is my goal? And is this between me, myself, and I, me, myself, and God, or another human being and to develop yeah. some kind of critical discernment about that. I mean, some of the stuff I see on Twitter, it's so cringeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this, and I get, I mean, you know, I'm becoming the person I never wanted to be becoming more of an ageist in my old age. But sometimes I really control myself from tweeting, are you going to be sorry in 20 or 30 years? <laughs> mm. I, so I've been just trying to, just soaking up everything that you're saying. There are a few things that I really want to point out and recognize and comment on. First off, the, what you're calling out about creativity and the process of creativity and how so often we put up that barrier almost of needing perfection before we even try to do something, I I just I hear you and I wholeheartedly agree that it, it, the creativity process so often just needs to be creativity for the sake of creativity, for getting exactly. your hands in there, getting your hands messy, and just doing it and seeing what comes out of that, and just 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 jumping in and trying. Um, and I love how you explain that so beautifully. Something I don't think I've shared on this show is that my, my minor was actually in studio art. Oh. And I love that you said you graduated from RIT. I'm actually, no, I didn't. From, you said Rochester. You said Rochester. No, I dropped out. I dropped, oh, dropped out. No, out. That's right. Sorry, 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 sorry. I promise I was listening, but <laughs> Um, but I grew up in Rochester, actually. And so, um, oh yeah. yeah, so that was so, it was just so neat hearing you say that. But but I love the creativity. And then just as you started talking about discernment, that was actually one of the questions that I had for today that I wanted to talk about and ask you about. It's not just that discernment in terms of whether to share, and that's kind of where you were going. But, but I almost want to back up for a moment and ask about the discernment of when to pause in terms of advocacy and to decide, okay, I need to, I need to take a step back and take care of me. So what have been some practical tips, ideas that maybe you've, you know, shared or found along the way for that discernment process of, okay, I'm starting to possibly unravel. And I'm not saying <laughs> for you. And, and I'm of course not talking about this in personal experience. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but I'm not on Facebook for, you know, this discernment process of, okay, I've realized I need to decide or discern. I need to take a break. 
So what is that? What is what did what are some tips that you have or ideas or thoughts you have for that? Well, here's one that's completely unoriginal. You know, observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. You know, I I personally don't care if it's now I've I observe it and I started this well, I guess in twenty sixteen. That was my big return, you know, to to the the faith of my my youth and my teens and you know, like, oh yeah, I remember this. This was real. This was deep wisdom. So I would say to people, I'm semi Shomer Shabbat. You know, meaning I'm not. I'm not rigorously observant. I I cook. I watch TV sometimes. I drive. I go to twelve step recovery meetings. But I unplug. You know, yeah. I I am offline from sundown on Friday night to sundown and sometimes beyond on Saturday night. Now, I happen to be married to an Episcopal priest, so that makes for some really interesting, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the real Sabbath, please, you know, anyway, so, um, so, in, but I, what I tell people, I don't care if you, if you call it Wednesday, choose one day a week that is safe for time, get off, you know, just unplug, just unplug. Yeah. And that, that's just basic. It's ancient. It's venerable. It, it works. Um, the other thing is, and again, people who know me have read my stuff know I also have this yoga thing in my life. So what I learned from my years as a yogini um, and what I call the ashram years is um, that we in Western culture are fairly massively ignorant about body wisdom and the body-mind connection. And Mm. we either are not aware of it, or we're confused about it, or we don't have any kind of sophistication about the nuances. So for example, I spend a lot of time, and I've written about this, about how anxiety and excitement feel the same way in the body, Mm. if you stop to think about it. So I, I also think that oneself, one way to tell whether you're going off the rails on social media is is to do body scans and i think i yeah i think in deliberate acts in no in desperately seeking spirituality i actually have an appendix where i talk about how to do a body scan where you go from head to toe and out to the extremities and back to the core to really pay attention to what's going on in your body and once you understand that and you understand for you what are the cardinal signs of anxiety or depression or uh, dis-ease with the world, then you pay attention to it and you notice. So if you start, if you notice that your, your, your breathing has become erratic or something, then you're, oh my God, or I'm holding my breath. Uh, those are signs that would be able to say, you know what, I need to, I'm, I need to take a break, you know? Um, I, I'm also very big on having accountability partners and I've got them set up all over the place. And, you know, me being me, they're cross religious traditions, cross spiritual traditions, they're cross generations, but I have a whole tassel of people who have my invitation and request my strong invitation to contact me when they see me going off the rails in public. And, they do. I've gotten phone calls. I've gotten direct messages from people who said, are you okay? Um, a religious sister two years ago 
at the very beginning of all this, uh, this particular regime, contacted me direct message and said, you do not seem like your usual generous self. You seem very edgy and very angry. And I went back and looked at my tweets and realized that a lot of stuff was coming out sideways. And I went back and I thanked her for it. And then we ended up having an interesting exchange where she said, I was reluctant to contact you yeah. about this. Mm. And I said, oh, sister. And I mean that quite literally. <laughs> I mean, I, I said, thank you. Uh, mm. I, you know, I rely on people who have come to know me because of my digital presence to give me the wake up call. The other thing is sometimes we get the wake up call from people we don't know. So last week I stepped right into a mess um, that was going on because I, I was responding very quickly without doing enough due diligence with some background stuff. And ended up being spending hours on Twitter. I finally decided, okay, what I need to do here is I need to model what it looks like to stay in conversation. And yeah. I ended up blocking a lot of people who were, it was just vitriol coming at me, and a lot of racist, mm. anti-Semitic, I mean, a lot of crazy stuff. And yeah. for people who were not completely crazy, I tried to engage with them and I tried to stay in engagement as long as I possibly could and also explain my original tweet and why I was supporting someone and everything. Now, mm -hmm. I'm glad I, it was awful, but I'm glad I did that because as the whole thing played out three days later, I was like, okay, I was, you know, I was right, I guess I was. I'm glad I <laughs> um, but it was it was sobering and that's another that's another indicator that you know I have a blue check mark and people laugh and say, Oh yeah, uh, one person said, Oh, another person with a blue check mark who's absolutely irrelevant, knows nothing, you know. I'm like, Yeah, okay, thanks. Mm. Um but I do have, I mean, it's a very small universe, but I do have some kind of public presence and I do have to pay attention to what the heck I'm tweeting yeah. and what yeah. I'm posting. That stuff is stunning. And so I would also say to people, if you do not have the stomach lining, the psychological training, the psycho-spiritual support to go into mortal combat on social media just don't do it yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah and i think i mean you even mentioned they're blocking some people and one thing that i've learned over the past couple of years especially being in you know the twitter sphere or whatever you want to call it right. but, i mean you don't owe people anything you know i think there is kind of this yeah. idea that like oh if i don't in if i don't respond to everybody then i'm being disingenuous somehow but i don't i don't think that's true and you really? know along with i mean 
to a certain no, I mean, extent. It's good to know because I always feel like I have to. And no, I no, well, okay. So here's how. That, yeah, well, know? here's how I thought about it the other day because you're talking about blocking people, and there's kind of the soft block where you block them, but then unblock them, but it made them unfollow you, or you know. And we talked about this some before we started, but you know, not feeling like we have to follow people that we know we're going to disagree with, that we know are going to make us mad. Yeah, and I, I tweeted right. something about that a couple weeks back, and somebody responded and said, "Well, how do you balance that with?" making sure that you're not in an echo chamber, that you're hearing people you disagree with. Right. And I had to think about it for a bit, yeah. but what I landed on was the same way I would evaluate that in person, right? If if somebody yeah. comes to me and says, I want to have a conversation with you, I disagree, mm-hmm. and I think this is going to be a respectful conversation, that is one thing. But if I said something and somebody says, hey, I disagree with you, and I'm going to start this conversation by yelling and knocking things over and calling names, yeah. there's no way in person I would say, well, I really owe it to hear them out. You know, that's just that's not a healthy conversation, you know, and so that's right. I, I think I've tried to overlay that onto online where, you know, that's, that's, if somebody is willing to say, I disagree, and here's why, and, you know, I'm, we're doing it respectfully, I'm in. But if not, like, hey, I don't, I don't owe somebody a conversation if they're not respecting me or if they're, you know, whatever it is, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good, thanks for that reminder, because I'm, I mean, years ago, I was always saying, whatever you do face-to-face happens online only faster. And and I and I that's true. I believe that's true. That's been my experience. But you know, I just heard what I needed to hear and and remember and and apply for myself. Is that that's right? I mean, the standard I would apply in face to face conversation. I actually sometimes don't. I often don't on on social media. It's so hard. And I, I mean, I will, my little piece that, that I'll add to with this has been, I've had to pay attention to how much energy I have for those that I am closest to yeah. and for those I've been entrusted to be yeah. mom or wife or colleague or friend. And for, I mean, for me, a lot of this process has been if I'm depleting energy from myself and I'm not able to then be the best version of who I'm really and truly entrusted to be with those closest to me, then I have to set up that boundary. And I really have to be paying attention to, do I need to be giving my energy to these who are just kind of taking it or stealing it? Or am I being careful enough to recognize that those closest to me, they really need that energy. I need to be saving it for them. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's also generational. There are two conversations we should have in the future. And since it took us years to get this one together, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, the, the two conversations is one thing is about the generational stuff. So at my age and stage in life where I don't have children at home, where I am at a point where I can be more, you know, that. I like what you said. I love the way you articulated that about, you know, who you're entrusted mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm. I actually don't have that in my life mm. at this point in my life. Um, and and so in some ways I'm free to be more available or more engaged with a, a, a public than I ever have mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So maybe we could talk about that in four years or so if we're all still alive. <laughs> in uh, season six or seven of the show, probably. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's we live in very uh challenging, authentically challenging and problematic 
times where we have been as a country, and again, I'm taking that that broad sociological view and also kind of high level legal looking at the, the constitutional rights so many of us have taken for granted for many years and, and for some of us our entire lifetime. And so we're, we're at a point in, in history where we're being challenged to look at that stuff um, and we're being challenged to learn more about it. And it's scary and it's bringing up a lot of stuff and a lot of us simply do not have the skill set never mind the emotional or uh, psycho-spiritual strength to deal with it. And so I'm at the point, not so much for myself, because again, it's something I need to learn, and I'm always learning, like every day I'm learning this, but I am at the point where I want to give people, I want to be generous with people, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt, I want to give people, I mean, I'm not talking about Nazis, you know, let's get real, but I, I want to people who misspeak on Twitter and then scramble to fix it, people who um, go on on tears on Facebook and have turned their Facebook presence into one long complaint, people who, you know, whatever. I, I just, I believe that what I'm called to do is for my own spiritual growth to be more generous than I've ever been. And to be more curious, again, I guess the book I would, if I had to promote a book based on, on this podcast, it would be The Desperately Seeking Spirituality. And that is exactly mm. a book that I I wrote what I needed to learn because our, that book was published, what, three years ago, maybe four years ago, started to find, never quite kind of found an audience. I think the audience is actually now because in that book, I say, let's talk about spiritual practices of being like curiosity, willingness, generosity, uh, empathy, delight. And these days I am so solidly working. My core spiritual practices these days are number one, curiosity, and number two, generosity. So I see something online that pisses me off, like every two seconds something pisses me off. I have to... I have to say, go into practice. My practice is curiosity. And that looks like saying, whoa, what is that? Mm. Get mm. curious about that. And then with generosity is to say, let me provide some space here mm. for myself and for the other person. And, yeah. and for the pile on, I mean, the digital pile on. I mean, my God, some of it's like just nuts. I mean, talk about digital versus face-to-face -face and so-called in real life. I mean, a lot of what we see on digital, especially Twitter these days, is the functional equivalent, the digital equivalent of seeing a bunch of kids piling on some poor kid in a playground. It's just mm. a pile-on of bullies. And it's if you saw it on a playground and you were an adult... Mm -hmm. would race over there and start pulling kids off the, the kid on the bottom. Yeah. But what yeah. we don't see in digital is an adult coming in and pulling the kids off yeah. the kid on the bottom on digital. Yeah.
Hey, if you want to connect with Meredith, you can find her at MeredithGould.com, on Twitter at MeredithGould, on Instagram at TheMeredithGould, or search for her on Facebook. If you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at HollyOxhandler.com or on Twitter at HollyOxhandler. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at Robert-Vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. Meredith, thank you so much for being with us today, having such a great conversation. So good. I'm glad. I'm simultaneously glad and sorry we've had to have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah. hope you have a great rest of your day. I know you have an aloe plant coming to be delivered. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have a good yeah. rest of your day. Thanks, Meredith. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.